let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And young ones, make sure that as your moms and dads are opening up their Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, that you're watching and you're looking at the words as we read it together. Okay, this is where we're going to be at today in the Bible, what we're going to be preaching about, Hebrews chapter 6. And what we're going to read specifically from this chapter is verses 11 through 20. Verses 11 through 20. And hopefully you young ones still have your pictures that I gave you of Father Abraham looking up at all the stars, because we're going to be talking about that later on. But let us look together now as a church at Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 20. The Word of the Lord says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them, who, through faith and patience, Inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, that is Abraham, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Well, I'm glad to be back in Hebrews chapter 6. We were away for a week. It seems like two weeks, at least in my mind, and my study has been way longer And what is undoubtedly one of the most controversial chapters of all of the Bible, to me really, is one of the most blessed chapters of all of the Bible. I mean, in chapter 6 we have all sorts of important foundational biblical truths swirling around. The doctrine of justification. The doctrine of preservation. Uh, the doctrine and the teaching of false professors, which A.J. brought out this morning in Acts chapter 8. We have for us the doctrine of the attributes of God that we'll be getting to next week. We have the covenants of Abraham we're being introduced and bringing into the picture today. 
all of these themes that are so important to the Christian's life packed in chapter 6. And after having really laid out and warning uh, as if it were a road map of those who are false professors, and then in verses 11 and 12, picking up some off of the ground of such a, a harsh, sober warning, in verses 11 and 12, the apostle recognizing, if you remember last time we're in Hebrews chapter 6, the work and the labor of love that many of these disciples were doing unto, or the text says, toward God and His name, and unto one another in the local church, he believed better things of them. He believed that the gospel, the true gospel of Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, had taken real root in their hearts. And so now what he wants to do, understanding as a responsible preacher, understanding as a responsible mature man in the faith, he wants to give them an example of how to pursue this hope, how to pursue with faith and patience the promises that are laid forth in the gospel that he believes because of their good works that they've believed. I, I find that so refreshing because, you know, sometimes we can think or we get a picture and it's a very false picture that the Christian life is just rose-petaled gardens. It's just without any despair, any affliction, any trials, any sickness, any difficult relationships, and that's not the case at all. And so what he does is he continues to use what I would call a pilgrim parallel. The pilgrim parallel that he's already been utilizing purposefully throughout the book of Hebrews. Have you noticed that he's been comparing as we've been going through this letter this first, these first century Jewish Christians, he's been comparing them with the wilderness generation. You've noticed that? And he's been drawing parallels over into their own example, giving them warning, Tyler, uh, giving them encouragements. Well, now he's going to continue to use the pilgrim parallel with Abraham now to draw out what we're seeing the theme is in verses 13 to 20 of pursuing the promises that are to be done through hope, through faith, and patience. So in verses 13 to 20, I want to look at these themes that now he's encouraging these people who he believes are real Christians, these themes of hope, these things of faith, these things of, of, of patience, enduring patiently to endure the promise by way of the example of Abraham, I want us to just marinate in these. I, I, I mean, there's so much in 13 and 20 to just take in, to soak in, because you and I need it in order to press forward and hold fast to the profession and the confession that we make in Christ unto the very end. And so I propose that as we do 13 to 20, understanding these various themes that are there, I want us today as we're introduced in the book of Hebrews for the first time to the promise made to Abraham and the pilgrim Abraham that we as a church walk through the Bible and understand what was the promise to Abraham. Let us fully just digest and take in and expand our biblical knowledge, our systematic 
theological knowledge, what's, what am I saying there? I'm talking about the promise made to Abraham, the theology that's connected with Abraham. Beloved is the springboard that all the rest of redemptive history is flowing next to, revealing by farther and farther steps the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the writer of Hebrews is telling them and preach to them that you have believed. And so it is absolutely important that you and I fully appreciate what exactly was promised to Abraham because the writer's reaching back in the Old Testament today, is he not? And he's bringing Abraham into his example for you and me as the New Testament church to be, as he described us, along with Abraham, heirs of the promise to now move forward in hope, faith, and patience unto the end. And so what I want to do today is simply walk through the promise of Abraham. And then next week, Lord willing, consider Abraham's example of enduring in this promise with patience. And we may put it together, maybe not. And then there may be a third message of understanding how that that promise, which is supposed to be as if it were gas in our gas tanks for hope, faith, and promise is built upon the certainty of Christ and the Father and their immutability. Little ones, that just means God is unchangeable. And so His love, His promise to Abraham, and what that means can never be changed. And maybe we'll put that theme with the enduring with patience together in one message. Not real sure how that's going to work out. But today, I want us to walk through the promise of Abraham. Now, anyone that's been with this pulpit ministry, been with this church for any length of time, we have talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We have talked much about the promise made to Abraham. But as I was thinking back and really contemplating on this, you know something that I've never done with anyone I don't believe that's in our church is walked through how that specifically the promises to Abraham, once we identify what was the promise to Abraham, were literally fulfilled during the lifetime of Abraham's descendants. I don't think I've ever done that. And so we're going to see that today, and it helps us to really understand what promise is being laid forth for us today. And then in doing so, we see next week, Lord willing, of what it means to endure into that promise. Now, by way of introduction, before we get going here in verse 13, I just want us to acknowledge something about the wisdom of God, the Spirit, in inspiring this writer to use these pilgrim parallels. The wisdom is, is in, in three ways could be considered like this. When we are paralleled with the pilgrims of the Old Testament, it gives us this big panoramic picture of identifying the true people of God. You see how using these pilgrim parallels in the book of Hebrews, it gives us the panoramic vision that, oh, there were pilgrims then who were sojourning in this world, looking with eyes of faith. Oh, and and I'm in that same journey. And so using these pilgrim parallels, it helps identify and expand our understanding of the people of God. It's not just those after the day of Pentecost in the New Testament, is it? No, 
There were sojourners and pilgrims, uh, uh, the pilgrims of faith, the pilgrims of, of God's people all throughout redemptive history. And another thing it does too, and the writer will bring this out in Hebrews 11, these p- pilgrim parallels are useful because it, it helps to serve as a springboard for warning today's pilgrims. And that's what the book of Hebrews has a lot contained in it, a lot of warnings. In other words, why would we make, after reading Jeremiah 8, while there is a lot of nuances, a lot of covenantal distinctions that we, of course, would have to notice, right, in interpreting that, why would we make the same mistakes as they made? You see, it's for, it's for our benefit, as the writer of Hebrews will say later. Those are all given as examples. And so the pilgrim parallels serve wonderful um, application that way. Helps us to identify the people of God in all redemptive history. Helps us to learn and be warned. But also, as we're going to see today and continuing, at least in the next week, is it gives us great encouragement. The pilgrim parallel usage gives us great encouragement and hope. Because, as we said earlier, when you really unpack, as we will do next week, the life of some of the pilgrims, those of faith in the Old Testament, we get a little scratch on our finger nowadays as modern people in, in the church. And, you know, we don't think we're going to make it. Oh, I, I just can't go on. Really? Wait till you see what Abraham went through. Wait till you see in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11, some of the other Old Testament saints went through. And when you see that, you do see that God's Word, His promises, they are unchangeable. And He will be with us into the end. And it adds as if it were great anchors for the soul. You saw that in the text today. Hope. One of the um, things we see a lot of in construction, you guys know I work in construction, and even you guys uh, and ladies too, you're familiar with this. When you hook up a trailer, we're hooking up a trailer to uh, one of our work trucks. We don't just rely on the ball that attaches and clamps on the hitch. We have as a backup these anchors, these chains, safety chains that attach on to the frame. The frame is unmovable, right? In theory, work with me here. The frame's unmovable. And it's safety to clip those chains on there in case the ball comes off. Then you got these two backup safety chains, which are anchors to that, which is supposed to be able to, you know, guide the trailer. And I did, out of curiosity, let me see a show a hand of the brothers here and sisters too, if you've ever been in this case. Have you ever been pulling a trailer that's come off of the hitch and you've only rescued the trailer and your life perhaps by the safety chains? Let me see a hand. Yeah, well, it's the most frightful thing when it happens because you're driving and then you notice something different. The trailer's going everywhere, left and right. And the only thing that's going to pull that out of its wackiness of going off the road is the vehicle that it's attached to by the safety chains because it's got the power, it's got the weight, and you have to very carefully maneuver this trailer to the side of the road, not hitting your brakes too soon, but keeping it tugged, keeping it tight. You've got to pull it tight so, that, so the chains are doing their job. And that's exactly what now we're about to enter into, is understanding through the promise made to Abraham, the safety chains for our faith that will make us hold tight, hold fast and steadfast unto the very end, the the faith that we profess, the hope that we confess in the Lord Jesus Christ.
And so today I want us to consider, as you see in your sermon notes, what was God's promise to Abraham? Verse 13, when God made promise to Abraham, saying, surely, verse 14, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Why is the writer wanting to draw our attention to Abraham? Well, Abraham, we know to begin to understand something of his promise, we need to understand something of him. He's introduced to us in Scripture at Genesis chapter 11. And he's about 75 years old. He comes through the genealogy of Shem, who is one of Noah's sons, firstborn son. And what's interesting about Abraham, when we're introduced to him initially, his name was Abram most of his life. And then even after God makes his promises with him, his, his name still remains Abram until a little later, later on when the Lord changes his name to Abraham. Abraham meaning literally father of nations. And Abraham goes on from this point of a 75-year-old man with an encounter with God to become a great patriarch, one of great renown. And it all begins with a call from God and a promise from God. And that story picks up in the Bible. We're going to go into Genesis. You see your sermon notes. The story of Abraham, the promise of Abraham, picks up with his family in Haran. They are at this time idol worshipers. Uh, Abraham is, we don't know the depth of his idol worship. We do know that his father worshipped, in some sense, the moon god. And so, however far in the lineage from Noah through Shem, Abraham has drifted, hasn't he? From the gospel and the creation narrative that Noah would have told his sons, which would have been passed down here, to Abraham, because now Abraham's own father is mixed up in idolatry. And so the point here, I just want you to get, when, when God finds Abraham and gives him this promise, which we're about to read in Genesis 12, Abraham's not searching for God. Abraham's not following faithfully the gospel promise that was given to Noah and the covenant promise given to Noah. Abraham's a lost man, isn't he, when we find him? Well, God finds and searches out Abraham. Uh, Finds probably not the best word, as we're going to be getting next week into some attributes of God. He knew where Abraham was. Uh, Rather, he revealed himself to Abraham. That's a better way to put it. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12 and start there, because we want to really understand some of the aspects of the promise of Abraham. And to do that, we need to go to these scriptures that teach us those things. So we're going to start off at Genesis 12. You have any sermon notes there? Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and go from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. 
And in these shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is the first revelation of God to Abraham of his promise that's being talked about in Hebrews 6.13. Now Abraham's promise was then later repeated, as you see in your sermon notes, in chapter 13, verses 14 and 17. Turn there. It's given a little bit more detail now. There's a little bit more revelation or expansion of this promise given to Abraham. Verses 14 and 17, specifically we read, And the Lord said unto Abram, After that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and look southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and, notice this, thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. The original promise of the land that we just saw in chapter 12 here is uh, fleshed out a little bit more. The promise to Abraham we see is given a little bit more detail to it. It's including, did you notice that? The talk of seed, the talk of offspring. And so this promise being made to Abraham is not only a land, not only blessing, not only in chapter 12 protection, um, vindication, those who curse you, I'll curse them. And now it adds to it seed and offspring will inherit the land as well. Now there's another place where this promise is continually repeated. You see it in your sermon notes. Genesis 17. Let's go there. Now all between these chapters, there's a lot going on in the life of Abraham, which we'll look at a little bit later next week of enduring and patience. His life had a lot of ups. And also a lot of downs. And in the midst of this, God is repeating this promise to Abraham of what he's going to do for Abraham. And so we come to chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, and this is noteworthy. In this repetition of the promise to Abraham, during the ups and downs of Abraham's journey, because now it's given a more it's given more solemnity. It's actually ratified if as if it were outwardly in a covenant form. Let's look at it in verse 17, beginning with verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him. What did God say? As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram. And here's the meaning of Abraham's name, is where it comes from, father of many nations. Going on, verse 5. But thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations 
have I made thee. And I will make you, hear the echoing of the former promise made to Abraham, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Let's keep going here, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for, notice this, an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Go down to 9, 9 through 11. This covenant that's just been solemnly ratified with between God from God toward Abraham based upon God's own will. He says, it's my covenant. He's coming. He's initiating this. And he's ratifying all these promises in a more solemn way. He applies this external sign to this arrangement that he's making with Abraham. And this is what we see in verses 9 and 11. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. Now what's interesting here attached with this covenant promise made to Abraham that has an external sign is what we need to pay attention to, is conditions. Conditions coupled with cannot be separated from cursings. So just go down in the text a little bit. You're going to see now that this promise and this covenant that he made with Abraham has conditions attached to it, especially with the sign of circumcision. Verse 14 is where that comes through very clearly. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, meaning that which I just told you to do, they don't do it, that soul shall be cut off from his people. Why? The text says, because he has broken my covenant. Now, we're seeing and we're seeking to understand and we want to handle faithfully the promise of Abraham. At this point, beloved, we're just adding skeleton and structure organization to what it is. What was promised in it? We see here so far that God has taken these promises, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17, and committed himself, bound himself in covenant with Abraham in order to fulfill that which he is promising to Abraham. The promises to Abraham being talked about in our text today in verse 13. Now, what our writer's doing in Hebrews today is specifically drawing our attention to the promises of Abraham when they were spoken historically as recorded later on in his life after chapter 17 of Genesis in chapter 22. You've seen in your sermon notes, go there. Because this is specifically in verses 13 through 20 what our inspired writer of Hebrews is bringing forth as a parallel to be considered. And he's doing so because of the promise of Abraham and specifically because it's made certain this covenant 
by God's own oath. And you saw that back in Hebrews when we were looking at it. So let's look good. Or let's look good. We ought to look good. Let's look now, goodly, there you go, to Genesis chapter 22. Chapter 22, verses 15 and 18. So the context here, you probably see it in your, in, your, in your study Bibles. This is where Abraham is coming in obedience and he's willing to offer his son, Isaac. And in that obedience, the angel of the Lord appears, beginning in verse 15. I, in agreement with a lot of other uh, people, believe that this is a Christophany. This is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing as the angel of the Lord, especially how he speaks. The angel of the Lord, verse 15 says, called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, notice the language here. This is why we believe this is Christ, who is divinity. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, meaning obedience, wanting to sacrifice his only son, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. Here's the echoing again of the promise. And in multiplying I will multiply thy seed. Now young ones, I gave you a piece of paper. What's Abraham in that picture doing? He's looking up in the sky, isn't he? And he's looking at the stars. Why is he doing that? Because God promises him in Genesis 22 verse 17 that because of Abraham's faith, because of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his own son, these promises to Abraham that we've been talking about so far, God even expands it even more as if it were to really press home the point to Abraham of how he's going to bless him. And he says to Abraham, I will multiply thy seed, young ones meaning his future generation, his future children that will come from him, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed, meaning your future generations, shall possess the gate of their enemies. And we're going to see in just a moment that the stars that Abraham looked at that were supposed to represent Naomi, all of those who would be born from the loins, or if it was a natural progeny of Abraham's loins, through natural birth, really represented all of the elect church that would ever come to faith and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ that is the Messiah. And so all we've done is just really looked at the structure and what are the uh, specific things that were contained in the promise of Abraham at this point. And these verses for us, they outline, do they not, beloved, if you think about as we just painted the backdrop of where Abraham was, who he was, and God intervening and breaking into his existence and his life, these verses outline an incredible promise. And they begin to set into motion. Notice where we're at in our Bibles. We're in the book of Genesis. And so these promise, promises begin to set into motion, if, if it were, this great gear, this great wheel of motion of God to bring about and to demonstrate one of the greatest testimonies of all of recorded history of God's sovereignty and God's providence that the world has ever known. 
Because from chapter 22, moving through the rest of the chapters of Genesis, and then through the rest of the book of the Bible, this promise that he's made here begins to unfold and unfold and unfold and unfold, more clarity, more clarity, more clarity, until the New Testament era where the apostles and Jesus Christ are laying the foundation and saying, this is fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ and you've come to believe upon this Messiah and now you are the heirs of the promise with Abraham. That's one of the most miraculous promises ever made. Since the promise to Abraham being spoken of in verse 13 is so important that the writer reaches back and brings it into his discussion or his sermonic letter and hope to inspire you, sister, to endure with patience unto the end. It's absolutely vital that we rightly understand the role of Abraham's promise. And now what we're going to do is rightly understand the proper interpretation of Abraham's promise. The proper interpretation, as you see in your notes, our second heading for today. At this point, when we pause and we carefully consider the covenant promises in the passages that we just read in the book of Genesis that God made to Abraham, which, verses 13 and 20, are being brought to our attentions, we can rightly conclude, can we not, that the three main elements, young ones, of the promises to Abraham contained in all those scriptures we just looked at, the three main elements of the promise to Abraham that's supposed to be encouraging us to go into the end, they were, were they not, land, seed or offspring, and blessing. Those are the three main elements. And so if you wanted to make a covenant to Abraham shake, that's the ingredients you put in there, wouldn't you? Land, Seed, that is offspring, generations, and blessing. And it's vitally important for you, church, to interpret these elements of the promise rightly so that you don't miss the emphasis of what the inspired writer is setting before us as new covenant disciples in the book of Hebrew today. And So that's the task we have set for us now for the remainder of the message, to rightly interpret these elements of the promise correctly so that we can just soak and marinate in the wonderful hope that we have as connected with Abraham, not physically, but heirs of the promise that shall be ours and made certain in Jesus Christ, come hell or high water, which we'll look at next week. Our exploration of rightly interpreting these three elements has to begin with one fundamental question. Are these three elements that we just looked at in the promise made to Abraham by God, land, seed, and blessing, are those three elements to be taken literal, physically? Or are they to be taken just spiritually? Or are they to be taken somehow as meaning both? Literal, and spiritual. The scriptural witness from the Bible, as we're going to see in a moment, is that the promises in those elements of the Abrahamic covenant are to be taken both literally, 
but also spiritually. And if you miss that, you're going to overemphasize the one over the other. And when you do that, you're going to take away a little bit of the thrust of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to accomplish in his sermonic letter at the point of Hebrews 6, 13-20. The Scriptures paint a picture and use categories, not so much as literal and spiritual, but more of shadow and substance. Or you could say a type and an anti-type. And so the land, as if it were, is a shadow of something, of substance, that's greater and spiritual beyond the land. And we're going to see in a moment, does the Scriptures prove this? Does the Scriptures evidence this? The seed has a shadow usage by God, a physical, literal usage by God, but it's pointing to something greater than that, and that's the substance that it's pointing to. All of this simply means that while in many ways that all three of these elements of promise were physically and or literally, in some cases or another, fulfilled in the life of Abraham or his physical offspring, they were intended by God, land, seed, blessing, to point to a substance, a spiritual reality that were much greater than any of those things in their physical sense could have represented it, could represent. And beloved, when we see this in the scriptures, I believe as if it were it adds a titanium coating to those safety chains that is your trailer anchored to the gospel truck, okay, for that crude illustration, that that can't be broken. And that's going to see you through all of the different trials and afflictions that you will indeed and face, like our father Abraham in your Christian journey. And so we have to see in Scripture that there is both a, a shadow of these promises of Abraham fulfilled, but also a substance that's been fulfilled And when I know that I have partaken in the true substance of which they pointed to, it adds strength to the safety anchor of my hope that's supposed to bring me through unto the end. Let's then therefore consider the land element. I've never done this before with this church, but it will help you in many ways. And here's one fundamental way to help you. Because I know all of us come from different backgrounds here in this church. My background was a background to where I was taught, or at least by osmosis I absorbed this sort of theology from the church, that there were still some unfulfilled promises made to Abraham that God had bound himself by oath to fulfill. And one of those, Fraser, was the land promise. And then therefore there was a culture that developed within the church based on this theological preposition through a faulty understanding of the Abrahamic promise, that there are still descendants of Abraham today that have right title and claim to some geographical land, and it will be definitely made there someday based upon the unfulfilled covenant promise to Abraham that we just saw in Genesis together. And therefore, we ought to advocate for that. We ought to steer the church's hearts and desires toward a national body body politic who identify themselves as Jews to rightfully owning that land. Now, I don't know if any of you ever come from those type of backgrounds, but I did. 
But what I wanted you to see now that in this promise made to Abraham, beloved, God fulfilled, He literally fulfilled the shadow of the land promise almost 3,000 years ago to all the descendants of Abraham. And then we're going to see that from Scripture, that land promise points to something much more glorious, much more wonderful than just mere dirt. So let's begin to consider how the physical land promise in the promise to Abraham was fulfilled in the generations of Abraham. Is there any scriptural evidence concerning the promise uh, land that was given to Abraham and his descendants, the land known as Canaan? Well, there is. There's ample proof. For, for, for time's sake, I'm going to give you three biblical proofs that I want you to have in your head concerning Abraham, concerning the Abrahamic covenant, concerning redemptive history. You see, beloved, how we're growing here in our biblical theology of how the Scriptures interweave together. That way, whenever you come into contact with people or you hear this sort of stuff, going back to the admonishment in Jeremiah chapter 8 of keeping a watch as the living church of Christ against the academia and so forth when things are set amiss and wrong theology is taught. No, you keep that train right on the track according to the Scriptures, the Word of God. The first proof that God did literally fulfill the land promised to Abraham, the shadow that it served, was in the book of Joshua. I'm not giving these necessarily in chronological order. I'm just, I'm just giving them to you, presenting them to you. In the book of Joshua, there's this plain statement. Very plain. I don't know how it's missed or how it's underemphasized and for what purpose it would be underemphasized. But God gives this clear statement in Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45. Look at your sermon notes. It is recorded, So the Lord gave to Israel... Don't you, don't you hate it when peace pastors say, okay, let's all say it together. But, but you got to, guys. I mean, because when you say it with me, I mean, it's like, you know, you see it, you're saying it, this is the Word of God. So the Lord gave to Israel, let's all say it together, all the land, all the land of which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Then to just really drive this nail down into the into its surface here, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord has spoken to the house of Israel. Here's this word again: all came to pass. Now, in the context and the word, go do all your exegeting you want. The word "all" there really means all. All of it came to pass. Okay, is there any other biblical evidence that God fulfilled these land promises? Well, the second proof of evidence centers around an interesting part of redemptive history that's recorded for us where there needed to be cities of refuge. Someone takes the life of someone wrongfully, right? But it was by accident. And in the Old Testament times, it was an eye for an eye. And so, Nolan, if you accidentally let your bull out of the pasture and your bull comes over and tramples on one of my children, well, then I'm going to come and take care of you, right, to get justice. Well, there, but you didn't mean that. It was, it, was, it was a legitimate accident. It was negligence, manslaughter by negligence. 
Well, God instructed the people of Israel in redemptive history to set up cities of refuge so that these type of men could escape and go there and uh, be protected from the, the vengeance of a disgruntled family member or something if something happened like that. Part of God's plan for Abraham's descendants was to establish six cities of refuge for the nation of Israel for the purpose I just shared. This is recorded in Numbers 35.13. Now God gave three of these cities to the Israelites with the command that if I bless you later on with more land, that you will establish three more and have six total cities of refuge. Look in your sermon notes. The Deuteronomy chapter 19, 8 through 9. This is where this command is given to them. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, then shall you add three more cities for yourselves beside these three. So they had three established there, we see, in the chronicles of their history. And we see very clearly that if, the God, if God promises to give their father or give them the land that he promised to their forefathers, they were to add three more, right, sister? So if it ever comes to pass that they add three more, isn't that a demonstration that God fulfilled his promises to give them the land that he swore to their forefathers? It says it very clearly there. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your fathers, and gives you the land which he promised to give your fathers, then shall you add these cities that he's already established for yourselves three more. Well, did he do that? He did. Go to Joshua. You turn, many of you probably are in, are in Genesis. Go to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. Let's look at together at verses 1 through 7. Now, now follow what's going on here. They, they've come into the land of Canaan. And they took dominion in the land of Canaan. Now that they have possession of the land promised to their fathers, as God swore he would give to them in fulfillment of the Hamic promise, the Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, which we just looked at. That the slayer that killeth any person unawares, negligence, and unwillingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he hath, and when he hath or when he that doth flee, sorry, and when he that does flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city, and shall declare his cause to the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto him, and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursues after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hands, because he smote his neighbor unwittingly, and hated him not before time. It wasn't premeditated. And he shall dwell in the city until he stand before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the high priest, and thou shalt be these days. When shall the slayer return, and come unto his city, and unto his own house, unto the city from whence he fled? And they appointed, 
How do they have this liberty to appoint these six cities? How do they have the ability to appoint these six cities? They have the ability because God gave them the land of Canaan as He promised to their fathers, according clearly to Deuteronomy 19. For the sake of time, we're not going to read them all, but there you go, 7 through 8. There's the six cities identified. So they had three God gave them. When I give the land unto you, appoint three more. Joshua, in redemptive history, records for us that they did just that. I.e. evidence that they were given the land. God fulfilled His promise to Abraham's descendants this time in the generation of Joshua. Lastly, I think there's others we could go to, but this one I think is very clear. And it's in a different way. It's not in the um, chronicles of the history books. Joshua's a history book, right, of the Old Testament. Go to, uh, in your notes, I gave it to you in your notes. Here we go. Nehemiah. In the generation of Nehemiah, moving forward here, subsequent later generations of Abraham, in connection with the land promises, the Levites, the tribe of Levites in Nehemiah's generation, they're in charge of worship, right? We have recorded part of one of their praises unto God in Nehemiah's generation. Notice specifically what's recorded in one of their worship songs, brother, to God. The faithful covenant-keeping God who honored everything He promised to their father Abraham. You have it in Nehemiah 9, 7-8. Thou art the Lord thy God, who didst choose Abraham. I love that part. We noticed a while ago, Abraham wasn't looking for God. Who didst choose Abraham, and brought him forth out of the Ur of Chaldees, and gave him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithfully before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites. Is he going to stop? No, they keep going. The Jebusites and the Gergesites to give it. I say to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. Either they were wrong, or God really did do it. In their recollection, in their praise song, their worship to God, God, you're worthy of all of our praise because of your faithfulness and your promises to our father Abraham. And notice the dominion, the expansion of the land in which they recorded. Now immediately, if you were watching closely, and we were going through the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis, you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, Pastor Doug. Didn't God say in the book of Genesis, especially verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 15, that it would be their position, He would give it to them forever? Doesn't, doesn't that mean forever? Well, that's why I drew out the conditionality in chapter 17. It was in so much forever as conditioned upon their obedience to the stipulations that God gave them. The word forever simply meant throughout the complete duration of time in which they would be obedient. The land promise that we see in Joshua, that we see recorded for us in the Levitical praise worship song in Nehemiah, 
It was dependent and has always been dependent as we see and we're going through the Old Testament and our readings right now, Jeremiah 8. It was always dependent upon the obedience on the part of the children of Israel. And that aspect of any of the old covenants that are made in the Old Testament and their conditionality is a key element that links them with the covenant of works we would call principle. Do this and live. Do this and be blessed. Which is separate from that which we have in Christ, which is of all of grace. We can never confuse the two. The Lord warned them that if they did not obey Him, then He would pluck them off the land. And if we had time, we could go to Deuteronomy 28, verses 15, 63, and 64, where He warned them that if you don't obey Me, I will pluck you out of this land and scatter you as far as the east is from the west, which we're reading about in Jeremiah chapter 8, which subsequently come to final fruition in the year 70 A.D. That, that, that totally happened. Because of their rebellion against the Lord, the Israelites forfeited their covenantal rights to the land that God, we just saw, was faithful and gave to them, didn't they? Well, I'm running out of time quickly, and there's a spiritual aspect to this land, which is greater and more precious. And the Scripture evidences this for us in connection with the promise to Abraham. We would go to Hebrews 11. You have it in your notes. How did Abraham understand the land promises? It tells us very clearly in Hebrews 11 how he understood them and why exactly it is the writer of Hebrews is bringing them into the conversation today. It says in verses 8-10, through 10, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, which the Levites in Nineveh just described. All these boundaries of Canaan. He sojourned in the land of promise as a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. What promise? The land promise. The physical land promise. That's how they were heirs of that promise. For he, Abraham, notice what it says, looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. That clearly interprets for us how Abraham understood the substance that lay behind the land promise that God was promising to him. Yes, he understood it literally, but he also understood the substance beyond it. That it was a land, as you see in your notes, Revelations 21.3, where God dwells in a tabernacle with men. We clearly see that Abraham saw past the physical land as only a shadow and believed with the eyes of faith of the substance of that spiritual promised land. And like Abraham, while we experience all sorts of suffering, hardship in our lives here on this physical land of earth, having this promised land in our hearts as Abraham did, it gives us hope, does it not, beloved, that no matter what we face, As we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we're assured to someday, as pilgrims, as Abraham, sojourning in this physical land, 
to rest and dwell with him forever. A land that is laid with the foundations of God. The seed element, I have ran out of time here, could be summarized by observing the fact that all of the Jews through the line of Isaac would be physically fulfilled. And not only all the Jews, but even the Arabs that come through and trace their lineage back to Ishmael, the physical aspect would be fulfilled. But was the physical generations, the physical people born after Abraham, was that really what God was emphasizing and what we're supposed to be considering today as the promise that we're to find hope in? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Because when you describe, Abby, the sands of the sea, and young ones, you have that picture still, the stars of the heaven, that's describing an infinite number. Not a, not, a, not a specific number that can, or, you know, a limited number of people. And while that there was a physical nation that came out of Abraham, the Jews and the Arabs, that's a whole different conversation. If you start talking about ethnicities and DNA and things of that nature, how would you qualify that? It, 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 in another way, you could say that almost everyone's a descendant of Abraham. We would have Abraham's DNA in us. But what the picture is we see from Scripture is that was pointing to something much more marvelous. And so here it is, young ones. That picture, the reason I gave that picture to is because what we're going to read in the Bible next is that when God promised to give Abraham many, many generations, as, as, as many as the stars that are in the heaven, He was talking about those who would come to faith in Jesus. The stars represent those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. It would represent His church. And that's the substance, that's the spiritual reality behind the physical seed that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. You have it in your notes. I wish we had more time to unpack these. But it's very clear when we allow the New Testament to interpret the Abrahamic covenant and its specific seed promise. Galatians 3, 16 and 20. Many of you familiar with this passage. Now unto Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We just spent a lot of time looking at that. Notice what Paul says. One of Paul's earliest epistles. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed, the heirs according to the promise. The same language we have today in verses 17, the heirs of promise. You see, the promise of the seed was pointing past the physical descendants of Abraham that he could see and that would go on and build eventually the Davidic kingdom, so forth and so on, and have this great dynasty. It was pointing past that, wasn't it? And it was pointing to the seeds that are in Christ through faith. That's the substance of the seed promise that God was making to Abraham. And indeed, we are described in the Bible as a nation, as a, a great people that come from Abraham in this sense. Recall how 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. 
that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Here's the spiritual substance of the promises to Abraham fulfilled through His church. And if there be any confusion about the physical and the spiritual aspect of the seed promise to Abraham, Paul clarifies it wonderfully. And in fact, Paul in all of his epistles was always watching this sort of aspect of the church dynamic in the New Covenant era. This confusing of the physical and the spiritual. And he says in Romans 2, you have it in your notes, 28 and 29, He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, this physical descendant of Abraham, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not for men, but of God. What's Paul doing there? He's wanting to bring out of the shadow the physical descendant, the Jew circumcised outwardly. He wants to bring out of that shackled shadow the true substance of the promise to Abraham. And he says, you church, you have this. You are the heirs of promise. You are the true Israel, the true Jew. The blessing element can be summarized very easily because we see that Abraham in the book of Genesis quickly gains a reputation as being blessed and accumulating much wealth. God fulfilled that literally. Additionally, we see how his descendants multiply greatly in the book of Exodus. The children of Abraham, that is the Israelites, numerically speaking, became a very large people, did they not? A great people. And then the rest of Exodus through Joshua records how these people, these descendants of Abraham, being blessed by God, they form into a nation. They have their own land, their own laws. The book of Judges and then historically, First and Second Samuel goes on to address the leadership of that nation through a king. And then this blessing that God promised to Abraham and his descendants continues to mount to the great dynasty of King David. And after King David, what happened? Covenant compromise built upon covenant compromise and the whole blessing that God gave them as we see in Jeremiah's reading this morning begins to be unraveled, doesn't it? But that didn't mean... We we can't take away, well, God, you didn't bless them. No, no, no. God promised Abraham a land. Church, did He give him a land? Amen? Amen. Did he give him a seed? He gave him a seed. Did he grow that seed into a mighty nation and bless them? He did. Or even foreign kings and queens. The king of Tyre, the queen... Uh, not Bathsheba, no. Did King David try to make her a queen? Uh, the, the queen of Sheba. She, she comes and what? Wants to hear Solomon's wisdom. They were renowned amongst the, the kingdoms around them. God did bless them. However, things, as I said, began to unravel as the people broke the law of God, the covenant uh, restrictions and limitations that He gave them, and they followed after other gods. Frequently, as we learned in Jeremiah, and we still are learning, the kings didn't reign as God's royal representatives, but they often, even the priests, even the scribes, they followed their own desires. And the prophets did what? Like Jeremiah did as we're reading and learning. They spoke for God and they warned the nation that judgment would come. That God would exact His covenant consequences upon them. 
And they were in danger of losing these blessings. And they would in fact be scattered and taken and plucked out of the land. And the same prophets, while they were doing that, we have been noticing, what were they doing? They were pointing and attempting to point the people away from the shadows to the substance and all of their decorations. They were pointing the people to the greater things that would be promised through those shadows. And when Jesus comes on the scene, all of the pieces started fitting together into one place. Jesus, the Scripture teaches, is the Davidic Messiah who not only rule over Israel, but also over the whole world, Revelation 19.15. Anyone, including Gentiles, who comes to Him in repentance and faith is made part of this kingdom. This kingdom that was promised to Abraham and that came to full fruition through the Gospel of Christ. While... Initially, the Jews who reject him, they were left out. The physical descendants of Abraham. Who, in many ways, while it was a Roman hammer that threw the death blow upon the spikes that pierced our Lord's hands and thrust the spear in his side, which was the fatal heart bleeding wound, it was the Jews who conspired every bit of it, the descendants of Abraham. Paul was the foremost apostle responsible for taking the good news, the true promise of Abraham to first his countrymen in Jerusalem. Oftentimes he was chased out of town, stoned, beaten, and then he was responsible for taking it to the Gentiles. Why? Because Paul rightly understood that the promise God made to Abraham in verse 13 was a promise that transcended everything earthly and was to be the spark in their eye of everyone that was granted faith to persevere and endure faith unto the end. If we, in closing, minimize the promise of Abraham as still being reduced, beloved, to physical trinkets here on earth, We are giving people the false hope and the wrong message. People's hope, I don't care where they live at geographically, is not to be assimilated again into some geographical part of the earth. Their hope and their only hope is the message of reconciliation that you must repent and believe upon the Messiah that the Lord has provided all of earth. And His name is Christ Jesus the Lord. Bow your knee. Confess with your tongue and believe in your heart that He is the only way. Now do you see why it's so important to really get these promises made to Abraham so important? Because it has so many implications that can get us sidetracked on the wrong thing and and cloud our witness, cloud our aim of the gospel arrow that we're shooting out. No, the promise that was made to Abraham pointed to a much glorious truth. A much glorious truth. That God has a kingdom that cannot be built with the hands of men. That God has a people that is so numerous, Naomi, throughout all of the ages. It included perhaps not only Adam and Eve, but it can include you today too. And you stand in this huge family known as the covenant people of God, which 
is represented by the stars. Daddy, last night when I went outside, and brothers and sisters, you, I know you, you had these experiences time, and this is the, the natural law of God that screams to us the gospel, the gospel truths that we're talking about today. When you get out of the city and you get a little bit out in the rural area, and you look up and you see all those stars, it reminds you of this promise that God is expanding. He's building His kingdom. And Uzziah, there's nothing that can stop the promise of God in continuing to save the souls of men. And there's only one way that He will save the souls of men. Every boy, every girl, every man, and every woman. And that is when His Spirit begins to prick their heart. And what we mean by that is it speaks to their heart. That they are a sinner. That they've disobeyed their mother and father. That they have broken the law of God. They have told a lie. They have taken things of their brothers and sisters. And they need to be forgiven by God their Creator. And God promises, I will not judge you if you come and you bow and you say you're sorry and you repent of your sins before me and you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Escape the wrath to come. Escape the judgment that will come upon all of this world. These vanities that surround us through my precious promise that I made to Abraham. And when the Spirit of God allows you to taste that. There's nothing that's going to break that chain that's connecting you to the truth of Christ and Christ crucified. Amen? Nothing. As Paul says in the book of Romans, nothing will separate us, brothers and sisters, from the love of God through hope, patience, and faith. Look to this promise unto the end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Creator, Lord God, we, Father, pause and quiet our hearts before Thy holy throne and just simply marvel, Lord, as we walked through your scriptures and understand one of the most glorious promises ever recorded and subsequently demonstrated in all of human history. The promise you made to our father in the faith, Abraham. Oh God, thank you from the depths of our beings, Lord, knowing the truths of ourselves like the pre-converted Abraham, we were self-centered, idolatrous worshipers, blind in darkness, blind in our own pride, blinded in our own lusts, blinded in our own desires. But Father, as You called Abraham out of Haran, out of the pagan Canaanite country, You have called us too. And now You have set us on a journey, O Lord, as pilgrims mimicking and paralleling our father Abraham on a great journey in which we will have great distress and affliction. But we see in the promise to Abraham that You have been faithful, You have been true, not only literally and physically, but spiritually. And we as the heirs of this promise along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of those that you have granted eyes of faith to see these truths, 
God, we ask you to help us. Strengthen us. We are weak and we are frail men and women. Frail boys and girls. How quickly we forget thy loving kindness. How quickly we forget, O Lord, your righteous law, which is good for us. Which is, uh, Father, that yoke, um, not of bondage, but that, that yoke, O Lord, that restrains our lusts. Lord, it restrains our evil appetites. And we pray, God, that you would give us and enlarge within us a love for your ways. Lord, you're very well aware of the current environment, world in which we live. And as pilgrims, Lord, journeying through this land, this strange land, Lord, help us to keep our hearts and our eyes of faith fixed upon the promise. The promise. The promise. Unlike men and women, Lord, who have to say at times to their children, I know I promised, but. I know I I told you that we would, but. Oh God, we are so thankful that with you there are no buts. That you will be certain as we will consider next week to be faithful and true. You cannot go against your own character your own word, for you will no longer be God. And with this, Lord, we can barely fathom, barely fathom how that you would reconcile us to you, a filthy, ill-deserving people. But you have adopted us. You have taken us in and you have washed us in the blood of thy son and you have made us pure. And you call us now your sons and your daughters. Lord, kindle afresh, I pray, our love for Thee, our zeal for Thee, our witness for Thee to others. And let us, Lord, recall how someone shared Your love to us, Your message of reconciliation at one point in our lives, whether it be through a a parent, a sibling, an extended family member, or a stranger off the street in our workplace. How can we hold back this boundless gospel that we have. Loose our tongues, O Lord, and bolden our hearts and grant us, I pray, a great sense of humility in declaring this good news to the lost world around us. We bless You, Lord, and we thank You in the name of Jesus Christ for all things. In His name we pray. Amen.